Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I am Ron Martin. And Ron, it's so good to have you back in the studio. I was beginning to doubt whether you'd ever be back. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, me too, sometimes. (laughs) Well, it is good having you back, Ron. And talking about doubt, that's what we wanted to talk about today. We're going to talk about doubt. It'll be a phenomenal discussion, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. Dr. Emil Brunner was a professor of theology in Zurich in the uh, mid-1900s. He was a, a remarkable thinker, and he made the statement in one of his books once that really struck me, and this is how he put it. He said, there's two big problems in the world. The first problem is unbelief. And by that, he meant the unbelief of a society, of a whole generation of people in the world that have rejected the notion of God. But then it was his second premise that really caught my attention because he said the second big problem in the world is doubt. And what he meant by that is that there's a whole generation of people in the church that still deal with the idea of unbelief as doubt. The issue of doubt just seems to permeate everybody's experience these days. As you mentioned, there's two uh, general forms of doubt that we would call, one being factual, which basically asks the question, what about? What about creation? What about evolution? What about the existence of God? What about the historicity of the person of Christ? Those are the kind of things that deal with factual doubt. But emotional doubt is much more prevalent in our society and even within the church because it asks just what if? What if God isn't going to take care of me? What if my problems are too big to get through? What if I lose a loved one? What if I go bankrupt in this economy? That's the kind of doubt, not that causes people to turn away from God, but causes people who accept God to turn away from experiencing him. G.K. Chesterton said the tragedy of disbelieving in God is not that a person ends up believing in nothing. Alas, it is much worse. A person may end up believing in anything. And I think that's often the case. See, doubt is not something that is unique to the believer. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, When I was an atheist, there were many nights where I lied in bed doubting the whole thing. As a Christian, there are very few nights where I lie awake doubting the whole thing. He admitted that even as a believer, there were times where he dealt with doubt. But he also recognized that as an unbeliever, there were more times where he dealt with doubt. So the problem here is not that believers alone deal with the issue of doubt. Doubt is not so much a function of the things that you believe, but oftentimes it is a function of humanity itself. It is typical for each of us as humans to doubt emotionally more than factually. And we'll talk about the differences between those soon. Hmm. And if you heard the Habermas interview recently, you probably heard him touching on this subject as well. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, certain doubts will enter your mind for the rest of your life. At some point, you will probably doubt whether or not you got the right education. You might also doubt at some point whether you picked the right career or the right spouse or the right house or the right city or the right neighborhood or (laughs) you name it. Those doubts will come through your mind. And those doubts are not indicators of a wrong decision, but rather an emotional issue that goes on in each of our minds and in each of our hearts that we need to deal with when it comes up. In the New Testament alone, there's four distinct words that are all translated doubt, or sometimes it's translated perplex, sometimes it's translated just simply doubt, other times it means double-minded, sometimes it means double-judged in the sense of having two standards. 
Three of those four words are used by Jesus himself in the Gospels, and they reflect the idea that Jesus was embracing the disciples on the level of their own doubt. And I just find that fascinating in a world where religion is typically classified as something that you believe a certain set of doctrines, you obey a set of rules, and don't ask any questions about it. You're expected to have undying loyalty, complete subservience to the system of thought. But Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity starts where you're at, brings you to a point of accepting the truth about who God is and who Jesus is, and then says, bring your doubts to me. Ask all the questions you want, both on the level of what is and on the level of what if. I love that about the Bible, that it does that. It embraces us in our doubt and encourages us to explore our doubt and come closer to God through that doubt. I think it's like that in any relationship. In a relationship, take, for example, a dating relationship. There is a whole lot you don't know about the other person. And that lack of knowledge or that ambiguity actually draws you deeper into the relationship as you seek to uncover what is true and as you seek to know this person better. And I think the way God uses doubt is he draws us into himself. As these doubts come through my mind, human nature drives me to look for an answer. And as I look for that answer, I discover more about the qualities and character of God himself. One of the things I find interesting about doubt itself, particularly this idea of emotional doubt, is it is at the seed of virtually every human problem, both those people of faith and those without faith. When you think about it, this kind of doubt produces anxiety, the seed thoughts that lead to depression, insecurity, and fear, all these things that actually shut people down. And what I find amazing, particularly about biblical Christianity in the book of James, James was uh, Jesus' brother. He became a, an apostle and leader and teacher in the early church. He wrote this book in the Bible with his name attached to it. And he said, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. There's this whole idea of life being this roller coaster where we gain those insecurities, we embrace anxiety. Some people get depressed, some people live in fear. And James says those things are actually the mechanism that drive us closer to God in those situations where to ask God for wisdom, doubt actually has a positive effect of bringing wisdom about in our life. If we don't question even our own beliefs, if we don't question them, we never grow. And I think that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we embrace our doubt, never running away from it, but in a sense, running to it, looking for the solutions that will draw us closer to God and closer to that wisdom about life that God offers. And the doubt that it's talking about in James 1, this being tossed back and forth, this double-mindedness that's discussed, I think is really hitting on the issue of emotional doubt. So let's go into that a little bit more as promised. Factual doubt is when you have a lack of understanding about the data. And what you need to get over factual doubt is more data. If you're listening to this show today, unless you have a degree in advanced astrophysics, you probably have a tremendous amount of doubt about the inner workings of the universe. 
that doubt is simply a lack of knowledge. If you were to spend some time studying, maybe get a degree in the subject, a lot of that doubt would vanish as you acquired knowledge. It's the same thing with God in some ways. Sometimes we have factual doubt about God or about the Bible, and investigation will give us the answers which will relieve that doubt. That's what we're talking about when we talk about factual doubt, just really digging in and discovering the truth. That might be solely from Scripture, discovering the truth of God, but it could also be in secular areas, discovering the truth about whatever it is you happen to be investigating. Now, the emotional doubt is what happens when we know the answer and we've heard the answer or we know answers exist that we haven't yet discovered. And instead of being okay with what exists and instead of being okay with the answers, we have this nagging what if I'm wrong feeling. What if the data that I've already seen or the data that I know exists aren't correct? We could ask those what if questions forever. And tomorrow we could be given the same answer that we were yesterday that completely satisfies the what if question. And the next day we can ask it again. It's this nagging that continues to happen over and over and over even after we've received adequate information and data. Now, that's what's happening here in James 1. It's talking about somebody that goes back and forth and back and forth. They're double-minded. They've seen that God is trustworthy, yet they do not trust him. They continue to question him even when he has shown himself to be true. Now, doubt can lead us closer to God as we seek for answers and as we search for the truth. But then when I have that, if I just continue to emotionally doubt, I can get into some trouble. Again, as we continue to talk about this and think about this, I'm reminded that on that level, that area of emotional doubt and even factual doubt, there's three root causes that contribute to this. Those three things that contribute to this are what's called secularization, privatization, and complacency. And I think it's interesting that as our society as a whole becomes more and more secular, doubt, just a normal occurrences of life, doubt becomes a much greater influence on people's behavior, people's thoughts, their relationships, everything. And this idea of being secular isn't necessarily the idea of religious versus non-religious. In the original language uh, where the word secular comes from in Latin, secular has to do more with the here and now versus the long-term or the eternal. And it basically goes like this, that if I believe that today is the only thing of value, everything that happens today has to be the ultimate that can happen. Because I don't believe that there's an eternity. I don't believe that there's anything outside this realm of the here and now. And what that does is it forces me to divorce the value system that would come from a belief in God that does say, not only is there a future, but there's a future with tremendous reward and joy involved with it. This idea of being secular forces people away from a value system of anything other than today. And most people are struggling just to get through today. And it brings up this idea of isolation, it brings in loneliness, and it brings in despair. Biblically, we're told that we have a value system in God, what we call the Christian worldview. And a worldview has to have four things to be legitimate. It has to explain the origins of our world and of life. It has to have a purpose of life. It has to describe morality, and it has to talk about destiny. Christianity is the only worldview that includes all four of these parameters in a comprehensive package. If I am involved in a secular world only, where only the here and now matter for anything, 
I've divorced myself from my origins and my destiny, and I have no basis for morality. And that is where doubt and its consequences of depression and insecurity come from. The second one, privatization, is this idea that permeates our society, particularly in the area of religious belief and Christianity, that says my faith is something personal that I hold to myself and doesn't impact the world around me and isn't even presentable to those around me. And again, that forces this idea of isolation, insecurity, fear, and doubt into our existence, even as believers. And then complacency simply means that we've just given up. We don't do our due diligence in getting the answers that we need, either on the emotional or the factual level. And the result is we're watching a whole generation arise in our society, politically, in the education world, in the professional world of people that are more and more isolated and crippled by their doubt. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 FM and 93.9 FM here in Durango. Malcolm Muggridge mentioned something very similar to the quote that we shared a minute ago by G.K. Chesterton. Muggridge put it this way, Our 20th century, far from being notable for scientific skepticism, is one of the most credulous in all of history. It is not that people believe in nothing, which would be bad enough, but that they believe in anything, which is really terrible. So I think what happens a lot of times is when people deal with these internal doubts, instead of looking for answers and then being satisfied with the answers and with the reality Mm. and Mm. doing their diligence to uncover what is true, they begin to fabricate in their mind whatever feels okay, whatever philosophy or theology protects them from the agony of that doubt tomorrow. So instead of actually getting at the truth of things, a lot of times people will follow their doubt into a very bad situation of coming up with different ideas that appease that doubt or just help them feel better. They'll believe almost anything. They begin to mold the truth to suit their own likes and dislikes. And we see this with Christians, and we see this with non-Christians, we see this with skeptics, and with people of faith, where people, instead of being passionate about knowing the truth, they will go wherever their emotions lead them to give them reprieve from the agony of whatever they happen to be doubting. A question that I think all of us need to ask, and this is a good question no matter what perspective you're coming from, is why do I believe what I believe? Mm. And if you can't answer that, with solid foundational answers, then you've got serious problems because the day is coming when you will be asked that question and it might be in a hostile situation. So know why it is that you believe what you believe. I was talking to a gentleman last summer and I said, what has been your background with Christianity? And he responded to me, I refuse to make a firm decision about anything. And I said, well, isn't that kind of a firm decision? (laughs) And he was absolutely speechless. He sat there with his mouth open, unable Mm. to respond. Mm. And what had happened is he'd followed his doubt into this very comfortable place of being able to say, I won't make a firm decision about anything. And I feel comfortable about that because then I don't have to deal with any doubts that I had when I did make a firm decision about something. All the while, he had no clue that his comfortable place was logically invalid. It was impossible to exist in that place in a logical way. And so a lot of times I think that's the danger, is we mold the truth to kind of suit our own likes and dislikes. And face it, your perspective, your desires have no impact whatsoever on the reality of the universe around you. (laughs) Whatever you might believe about a cliff 
has nothing to do with what will happen if you fall off that cliff. <laughs> Gravity alone will determine those consequences. What this brings up at this point in our discussion is that the truth, not to sound like the X-Files, but that the truth is out there, that we are a people in our rational facilities that can actually arrive at truth, and that truth both is factual and emotional. In Christianity, we have this belief that comes from the book of Genesis in the very early chapters of the Bible that we are created in God's image. And part of that image is the ability to reason through our doubt, to reason through the evidence, to reason through our world, and actually arrive at conclusions that arrest doubt and give us confidence. In the next show, we're going to talk about what faith is, but I thought it would be interesting just to note, to mention the idea that there is a solution, that there is a means that we as people arrive at conclusions to take away doubt and replace it with this wonderful thing called security of life, this wonderful thing called answers. In preparation for the show, I was thinking of this example in the book of Matthew, this amazing occurrence where the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and they're in their fishing boats and there's a storm going on. And the disciples are there and they see Jesus in one of the other boats. And at the point in this storm, they are all absolutely terrified. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, sees Jesus in that other boat and he wants Jesus to be the answer to the problem. But he feels paralyzed. And Jesus actually encourages Peter to, in a sense, embrace that doubt and take a step, not just a step of blind faith, but a step of real faith in who Jesus is in his answers to their doubt, to their crisis of their life, their fear, their depression, their anxiety. Peter begins walking on the water, and as he gets closer to Jesus, he begins to sink, and then eventually he falls into the water, and Jesus is the one that at that point reaches out with his hand, grabs Peter, but it's Jesus' words at that point that just strike me as so relevant to this discussion. He says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And it was interesting that Peter had the gumption to actually get out of that boat and start walking toward Jesus. But as he did, that's when the doubt really crippled him. And he went into that water. But it was Jesus who reached out to him in his doubt, pulled him out of the water, and then questioned him about his doubt. And I think that's an important lesson for us to realize, again, there's no shame in doubt. There's no disparaging doubt itself. We're encouraged to ask the difficult questions of life, of existence, of purpose on this earth. But ultimately, there comes that point where we have to go beyond ourselves. And that's where I see this wonderful act of Jesus reaching out to Peter and pulling him out of the water but still questioning him about his doubt. I think that's just one of the most beautiful pictures biblically that challenges the idea of doubt and gives us the solution in Jesus himself. In Mark 9, we hear of a father of a demon-possessed boy that comes to Jesus, and he says, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responds saying, If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I think that's where we get in our walk with God. There will never be a day where you have no doubt about anything. And when you sense those doubts and when you feel those doubts, especially emotional doubts, you can run to your Savior and you can say, Jesus, 
I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And with the factual doubts where there's simply a lack of knowledge, you can ask the hard questions and dig deep and find good answers. And I promise you that whatever doubt you could possibly be thinking of right now as you hear me saying these words, there's a good answer to that. I think most people that have a lot of answers have dealt with a whole lot of doubt, right? And they've found those answers. It's okay if you have those factual doubts to look for the answers. Find somebody that you can trust, maybe a pastor or somebody like that, and ask them some of those questions. And just a note, every year we hear students saying, I asked my pastor why I should believe the Bible. And he told me, don't ask those questions anymore. Mm. If you hear that answer... Please do not stop there. Please do not get mad at Christians for not having the answers. If you hear that answer, there are good answers. The person that told you that just hasn't looked to find them. So keep asking. You'll find them. And keep listening to the show because we'll discuss them. So if you're a believer and you have these doubts, come to Jesus and say, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And he will. Then take the step to start looking for the answers. Another great way to deal with doubt as a believer, Ron, is to read your Bible and then apply what it says. In James 1.22, it says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. A lot of times when we know what Scripture is telling us to do and don't do it, the result is doubt. We start to believe that it's not true when we're not applying God's word. I would also encourage you to stay close with other believers that can encourage you in this battle. And if you're one that is wrestling with this whole idea of faith, of religion, what is Christianity, what is the truth that is around our world and in our world, here's what I would say also. We mentioned this idea of worldview. The questions that would be posed to answer the biggest questions of life, of origins, purpose, morality, and destiny. I would encourage you to not be satisfied with simple, easy answers. We live in a world today where we want to put everything in little boxes and little compartments. And I think it's important for all of us, believer and unbeliever, to be willing to ask the hard questions and analyze and consider the answer carefully. I am so convinced that Christianity, that faith that is presented in the Bible, is the only worldview that can truly answer all four of these questions. We are told where people come from, how God created this universe, that we're created in his image. We are given a purpose to love each other and to love that God above all else. We are given a foundation for morality. What is right and wrong? How do we treat each other? How should we treat each other? What do we do about those that don't treat each other in a way that is worthy of them being created in God's image? And most importantly, in a real sense, this idea of destiny. Is there more than just the secular world of today? How do we find out about that? How do we reach that ultimate goal of spending, in a sense, a timeless eternity with our Creator. It sounds radical because it is radical, but the answers are there. And the answers I have found to be only in Christianity in a very real and pragmatic way that answers all those four questions. Don't be afraid of doubt. Don't let your doubt shut you down. Don't go to the place of anxiety or depression or insecurity or fear. Find those around you that you can ask these questions with. Bring them up with your friends. Find those that know the Bible, that can explain the Bible. Go to a good church here in town. Ask your pastor. Ask counselors. 
don't give up on the good fight of finding the deepest answers of life because those answers are so worth the effort. That's what I would say is the ultimate conclusion to doubt is we have answers. Like Ron said, do not be afraid of your doubt. You're not the first person to feel those things or to think those thoughts or to ask those questions. They've all been asked before. Don't be afraid of your doubt, but rather allow your doubt to build your faith muscles. Think of it this way. When you lift weights, that weight pulls your arm down, and then you have to pull it back up, building that muscle, strengthening that muscle as you do that. It's the same thing with doubt. Sometimes our doubt will pull our faith down, but then we have to lift it back up, whether that's through looking for the evidence or answering the questions or persevering through the emotional agony. But as we lift back up, and then as that doubt hits and it falls back down, but then we lift back up again, we are strengthening in our faith, just as you would be strengthening your arms in the gym. And so, in a way, doubt can be used to strengthen our faith, like we've discussed today. Now, if you're not a believer, I would say there is no atheist or agnostic that doesn't doubt their atheism or agnosticism. The Bible tells us, and I believe this is true from every conversation I've ever had about this topic, that we know intrinsically at our core that there is a God. You know this. You know that this is not all here by chance. A two-year study was just concluded last year of over 5,000 university students. It was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and it was titled Religious and Spiritual Struggle. The study found that atheists and agnostics were the most likely groups to be angry with God. Imagine this, Ron. (laughs) People that profess to not believe in God are the people that are most angry with God. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) That's just fascinating. (laughs) Yet again, showing that as strong a skeptic as someone might be, they still deal with this emotional doubt at their core. And oftentimes, that is what's funneling them into this place of skepticism where they are molding their quote-unquote truth to suit their own likes and dislikes like we discussed. Now, if you are in that place of skepticism or if you've struggled with doubt and never put your trust in Christ, no matter where you're at today, we want to encourage you to come to Jesus. You do not have to wait till you have no doubt to come to Jesus. Timothy Keller and the Reason for God put it this way. He said, imagine two scenarios. Imagine you're sliding down a cliff and you see a tree branch and you know with certainty that that tree branch could save your life and you have all the data to make the decision to grab that tree branch and be saved, but you don't act on it. It doesn't matter that you had no doubt. You would still fall off the cliff and die. He said, imagine a second scenario where you're falling down this cliff and you see a branch And everything in you doubts whether or not that branch could possibly save you. In fact, in your mind, as you analyze it, that split second before going off the cliff, you're thinking, there's no way it'll hold me. It'll rip right out of the ground. But last second, you grab it just in case because you have no other hope. And it does save you. See, even if you had doubt in that second scenario, putting your little faith into something that was trustworthy would result in your salvation. And it's the same way with God. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't have a whole lot of faith to put in him, he says, come as you are. Put your trust in me, and you'll soon find out that I am trustworthy. 
And the second you put your trust in him, he will start a relationship with you. So wherever you're at today, do not wait till you have no doubt because that day will never come. Come to Jesus asking the hard questions Mm. and coming to him nonetheless. That's right, Nate. And again, if you are listening to this broadcast and you have those kind of questions, write us, send us an email, let us know your thoughts on this. But as Nate said, we encourage you strongly, don't wait for your doubt to go away. Take that doubt and embrace the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus Christ, and ask him for help, and he will not leave you alone. If you're a college student, please come to Connect this week. Connect meets every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Weather permitting, we'll be meeting in the amphitheater this week. If it rains, we'll meet at the Student Life Center at Room 119, still at 7.30. I hope you'll join us at 7.30 p.m. in the amphitheater, and if it rains, at the Student Life Center in Room 119. A great place where you could plug in this morning and meet some other people that are going to accept you no matter what kind of doubt you're dealing with would be First Baptist. They meet on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street, and they meet this morning at 1045. You can get all of our previous shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com under the God Solution tab. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday. See you next week. I